listening to the podcast of Antioch East Baptist Church in Magnolia, Arkansas. This is Pastor Ron Owen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any comments or inquiries, you can send those to us at aebc123 at me.com. this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. I know you just sat down, so I'm going to let you remain seated if you promise that you'd sit up and reverence the reading of God's Word. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to talk to you a little bit about some history before we... And that is just a jumping off point. It basically has all five of the solas that we're going to study this month in it. It talks about faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, that no man should boast the glory of God alone. And it doesn't mention Scripture, but it is Scripture, so it's by Scripture alone. That, by the way, is our subject this morning, sola scriptura. Let me give you a little background I'll get with it. The Protestant Reformation is said to have been birthed in 1517. By the way, if you don't know anything about the Reformation and things like that, uh, you know, turn your turn your turn your TV off and get off Facebook and get you some good books and study about these things, these history of your forefathers and why you get to sit comfortably in that padded pew you're in this morning and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't have to depend on a father and a mother's dress to give it to you. You'll get that later in life, I promise you. The Protestant Reformation is is said to have been birthed in 1517 when Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, This was not an uncommon practice. Now, much is made about him going up and the dramatics of him nailing them. Everybody nailed their theses to the door of the churches. And that's kind of how you communicate. It was the bulletin board theologically of the day but the difference there's a few differences about uh, Martin Luther's number one it went squarely against the Catholic Church it confronted their corruption and their mistreatment of the scriptures these theses were an attack on the corruption of the Catholic Church in particular on its theology and teaching on the gospel What made these uh, writings fly was that the students of Luther took a copy of these theses and used the newly invented printing press and made copies and distributed them. God knows what he's doing. From this, the Reformation exploded into a massive recapturing of the true gospel from the thousand-year darkness of the Catholic heresies. Now, there were pockets and there were people through those thousand years that stayed true to the gospel. The Catholic Church itself probably didn't get corrupt in the gospel many years after the first churches. 
but it became corrupt quickly. And I'll tell you how a little bit here in a minute. And so the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Huss, and some other men that, and folks that we'll mention, they saw the error of the teaching of the Catholic Church. And they had some standards of belief. And it has been organized into this, uh, uh, what we call the five solas. That's Latin. Sola is the Anglicized form of the Latin sole, simply meaning alone. Okay? We get our word solo from it. I'm going to sing a solo. What does that mean? I'm going to sing all by myself. No duets, no trios. It's going to be a solo. The five solas are these. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Solus Christus, or solo Christo, through Christ alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. And soli dio gloria, glory to God alone. To the glory of God alone. Although they certainly believed, the reformers certainly believed and taught these five standards, the early reformers did not have an organized outline of these solas. They didn't have time to be cute like Brother Ron is with some of his outlines. They were just trying to get truth out. And they certainly taught these truths. And the organization or outline of these really didn't come, you can be surprised at this, did not come into full being, the five of them, until 1965 in a book called The Church of the World by Johann Baptista Metz. The... And by the way, here's another thing you must understand. These are not the five solas of the Reformation as they are always referred to. They are the five solas of God's Word. These truths are just a summation of the standard of the true gospel. Paul preached these solas. Peter preached these solas. Christ gave us these alone statements and we're going to look at them. Now... That's my introduction, and here's uh, some more little history lesson. I don't know exactly what to call it. I guess I should have named it, but my first point is this, the Catholic Church's authority for absolute truth. Now, here's the basis of this. Martin Luther and others, uh, John Wycliffe and Tyndale, we'll talk more about those uh, the other ones later, they, they saw the corruption of the, the priesthood and of the churches, and, uh, and they saw that they were teaching false doctrine on how to be saved and they began to teach and preach the true gospel. But the Catholic Church had a standard or standards. The first churches following the apostolic times were orthodox for the most part. That means they believed the truth. But as Christianity grew and with the help of Constantine who converted to Christianity and thought he was helping but he really didn't set up a church state the church at Rome was elevated in authority and thus was its bishops or what they would start calling as priests. It did not take very long for the church to become powerful and corrupt. Eventually the true gospel was lost in the Catholic church, left to uh, some small pockets of true believers who were chased, tortured, executed by the false church of Rome. But the church uh, of Rome, the Catholic church, believes in absolute truth. They just believe that there's more absolute truth other than what the Bible teaches. They do believe that Scripture. Rome teaches that Scripture is an authority, but it is not the authority. 
It is an authority. They believe that church tradition is on the level of truth of the Bible and is, uh, has authority in every Christian's life. Church tradition is no different than those heretics that say they receive special revelation from God. It's the belief, uh, it's the belief that extra-biblical teaching from church history becomes authoritative truth on the level of Scripture. This is where they get praying to saints or praying to Mary or that they believe Mary is a co-redemptrix with Christ. Where do they get that? Not from this book, from church tradition and teaching and the idea of limbo or purgatory. I want a Catholic boy of the Lord by keep pressing him, show me purgatory in the Bible. Of course he couldn't. They say that the traditions of the church through its councils and popes are a living tradition. Basically, let's leave truth open so we can change it with the times. Truth can be added. It can be contradicted. It can change with the times. Their truth is no truth at all. They also believe the, what they call what is called the magisterium. It's a fancy word for councils and the Pope. That that has the same authority, maybe even more so. You heard that, uh, what he said, we can do away with the law of God and accept the law of the Pope. That's what that guy said to William Tyndale. Church councils and the papal edicts are an inerrant, as inerrant as Scripture is what they believe. Catholic thought was that the Pope spoke what is called ex cathedra. This is all Latin. That's what they all spoke back then. Ex cathedra. This has become the official doctrine uh, uh, in the 1800s of the Catholic Church that when the Pope speaks on matters of faith and belief and truth, that he speaks ex cathedra. And that phrase is a Latin phrase meaning from the chair, from the throne. It was originally applied to decisions made by popes from their thrones. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, a pope speaking ex cathedra on issues of faith and morals is infallible. He speaks directly from the throne of God. A man who has like passions as you do. The word pope is from the Latin word, if I'm not mistaken, papa, meaning daddy or father. But we believe, and the reformers taught, and we believe this, and are convicted of it, by a sure foundation, sola scriptura. We believe in scripture alone as being the authority for our lives, our salvation, and for truth. You say, Brother Ron, aren't you a pastor? Don't you have authority? Only what authority this book right here gives me. And it, it's just to preach and teach and lead the congregation. I don't have the right to tell you what to do or how to, how to live outside of this book. This is your final authority. This was the belief in the teaching of the early church and Scripture itself, that it is Scripture alone. Men and movements 
have defended Scripture alone. Men, as we talk, we talk about William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, who was uh, an English scholastic philosopher, theologian, biblical translator, reformer, priest, and a seminary professor at the University of Oxford. He was born in 1328, a long time ago. He died in 1384 at the age of 56. He's called the morning star of the Reformation because he came on the scene a couple of hundred years before Martin Luther and some others. But he's called the morning star of the Protestant Reformation because of his preaching and teaching on the, on, on the orthodox or the true gospel and against the perversions of the Catholic Church and its priesthood. His greatest effort was the translation of the Latin Vulgate into English. Now before William Tyndale, which was a couple hundred years later, translated from the Greek manuscripts, he took the old Latin and translated English into it. He believed the Bible to be the final authority in all matters and that the common man should have access to a Bible in their own language. He was so hated by the Catholic Church that years after his death, the Pope had his remains unearthed, burned, and thrown into the River Swift. That's some hatred, isn't it? From Papa. Listen to some of his quotes. He said, All Christian life is to be measured by Scripture, by every word thereof. The gospel alone is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conducts added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was preaching this when the state church was saying, you got to pray your rosary, you got to uh, 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 confess to the priest, you've got to merit your salvation. That grace came through merit, which is silliness. He stood up against this. He also said, Holy Scripture is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith and the foundation for any reform. His life began a rumbling in Christendom that led to the likes of John Huss, William Tyndale, and ultimately to Martin Luther, whom God used to change the world. Young people, listen to these names. You need to study them. You need to get biography. Everybody needs to get biographies of these men and understood what they did and what they had to pay for, most of them dying at the stake so that you and I could have a copy of this book right here that we throw up on our dashboard and leave all week till we come back to church. Let me say a little bit of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther is so hailed by reformed uh, churches and, and all Christians. I'm not going to give you his whole testimony, but he, he went to Rome. He made a trip to Rome, which was exciting to him. But when he got there and saw the corruption and the harlotry and the prostitution at the very steps of the Vatican, he went away dismayed. Anyway, through a series of events, Martin Luther came by studying Augustine. And Augustine, who was an early church father, who, was, uh, who fought for grace alone. And in studying that and reading Romans, he came to believe that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. Michael 
Kruger wrote of, of Martin Luther, this conviction of sola scriptura, the scripture alone are the words of God, therefore the only infallible rule for life and doctrine provided the fuel needed to ignite the Reformation. Indeed, it was regarded as, listen, the sola scriptura was regarded as the formal cause of the Reformation, whereas sola fide, or faith alone, was regarded as the material cause. The sentiments of this doctrine are embodied in Martin Luther's famous speech at the Diet of Worms, or Worms, however they pronounce it in German. After he was asked to recant his teaching, he was taken before rulers of the state and rulers of the church to defend himself. Uh, he was uh, whisked away and hidden so that they wouldn't capture him and kill him after this happened. And they told him if he didn't recant, that he needed to recant his teaching. What teaching? Everything that we read and believe and teach from this pulpit about the gospel. So he was asked to, to recant and he went and spent a night or two in prayer and, and meditation. He came back and here's just a little, you need to read the whole thing, but here's a snippet of what he said. He said to these rulers who had the authority to take him and kill him, unless I am convicted, convinced, by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by scripture. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. For Luther, the scriptures and the scriptures alone were the final arbiter of what we should believe. That's the second part of this message, or the second message. And now I want to get into the Bible study itself. It's one thing to say, is scripture our final authority? The only authority, written authority, only written and given revelation of God of himself to us. And we believe and teach that yes, it is. Now I want to tell you, and I'll be very honest with you, and I've seen some preachers try to wiggle out of this, everybody has to have a presupposition of the Bible. Why? Because when God stepped out of nothing onto nothing and spoke everything into existence, you weren't there. There's no empirical evidence of Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. And you have to come at it with everybody has presuppositions. You say, well, I don't believe that the Bible is the final authority. I think it has errors and I think it's wrong. And all that. That's your presupposition. My presupposition is this, that the Bible is true. There's another word for presupposition and it has to be in the final because there's no, we have no empirical evidence of the things that are written in the Bible. We weren't there. Now we can prove God's existence through uh, that there's an intelligent designer by looking in a space, but we don't have empirical evidence. So we have to have a presupposition, which is a fancier word for the word faith. Faith. Now with what I see in the world, and I see a man, and I see in creation, I come to the realization, yes, I think this book is speaking truthfully. God never used apologetics 
had a guy get on to me one time because I didn't apply the scriptures life. Jesus never applied his messages. He, he thinks men are intelligent enough to get what he said. But uh, apologetics is this deal where you try to defend the faith and try to prove the existence of God or prove this or that or argue. There's nothing wrong with it. And a lot of good people, I have good friends that really like apologetics, but God never did apologetics. Let me show you how God defended himself. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did not try to defend it. Basically what he says is you can believe it to your salvation or you can deny it to your damnation. But here it is. Here is my message. Number one, and these are old truths that you've probably heard over and over again. And these kids need to hear it and you need to be refreshed. Number one, the word of God is inspired by God. The inspiration of scripture. We find that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, instruction, righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspiration is the Greek word theonoustos. Actually, I pronounce that wrong every time. I'm giving an English translation. It's theopanoustos. That's how it's pronounced in the Greek, if I'm not mistaken. You pronounce the P. We do not. We call it pneumonia. We don't call it pneumonia. <laughs> so you have a compound word here, theos, which is the word for God. That's God. And noustos, which is the word for breath. That's why we call it pneumonia. The pneumonia is a Greek word meaning a disease of the lungs or of the breath. And the Bible says that the word of God was God-breathed. Theos noustos, God-breathed. Every word, all scripture is given by the breath of God. And that is just saying God spoke the words to men who wrote it down. We find that further in 2 Timothy 1.21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or born or carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Amos didn't write the words of Amos. He wrote the words of God. Habakkuk didn't write the words of Habakkuk. He was writing the words of God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. Basically all Paul was was a secretary for the Holy Spirit. Scripture is the word of God alone. Over 1,500 times in the Old Testament, you will find the phrase, Thus says Yahweh. Thus says the Lord in capital letters in your English translation. But it's thus says Yahweh. Peter claimed Paul's epistles to be Scripture. 2 Peter 3.16, as also in all his epistles, talking about Paul, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. Absolutely correct. But which untaught and unstable people, which twist, uh, people twist to their own destruction as they do also. Now listen, the rest of the Scriptures. Number three, inerrancy of the Scriptures. That is, we believe that this book is without errors. Now, before everybody starts saying this or that and this and that, yes, I know there are some copyist errors, but no Word of God errors. We identify them easily, and none of them change the meaning of Scripture. You may have a phrase repeated like I talked about last week, or, or this or that, or 
maybe a misspelled word here or there. But we have, I don't know how many thousands of copies of manuscripts of the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and, and they are nearly perfectly in line with each other. Most of those that are different are probably scribal errors. You think about it, folks. It was written over a 1,600-year period, over 60 generations by 40-plus authors from every walk of life, and it was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And in all of that, over those years, deliver us without one mistake, contradiction, error of thought, or difference of opinion. It is a miraculous book. The accuracy, cohesiveness, and the very message itself is enough to tell you it is a miraculous book. Psalm 18.30 says this of the Word of God. As for God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is proven or tested or found true. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. You say, Brother Ron, that's kind of circular, isn't it? Isn't that kind of circular? Reasoning, you take and you say the Bible's there, and you take your proof from the Bible. Well, what else are you going to take it from? This was God's delivered word to us. Now you say, well, I just don't believe it. We're praying for you. But today, if you'll believe it and receive it and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll save you from the sins that you know you have. Explain that. He did. You come here and, and you have guilt of your sin and you, you know something's wrong. What is that? You can't explain it unless you hear from God's Word how it perfectly describes how men are sinners and there is a holy God to answer to and you cannot save yourself. But God in Christ paved a way for you to be born again and be saved. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Paul acknowledged scripture's trustworthiness in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Everybody has to have a standard. There's got to be a standard. If you don't have a standard, you have chaos. If you don't have a standard, you have a government's telling you that you might not be a man or you might not be a woman. You've got to decide for yourself. We need to quit calling people by gender. What is that? Filth! That's what that is. Filth. According to the word. If it is without error, it is infallible. If it is infallible, it is perfect. If it is, imp- if it is perfect, it is unchanging. Fourthly, the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Scripture is God's Word and it is without error, it is sufficient for every instruction. The Scriptures are God's revelation of Himself to us. This means that He wants us to know Him. And he wants to reveal himself to us. Is that not amazing? Yeah, you would have known there's an awesome God by looking in the sky, but you wouldn't know this awesome God is a God of patience, love, grace, and mercy without the word of God. Stay with me, folks. I'm almost to the end here. The only way to know God and his requirements is the Holy Scripture, and it's sufficient for that. It is sufficient for salvation. 
quickly. 2 Timothy 3.15 And that from childhood, you, you, from childhood, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. That had been a good verse to jump off for these five solas, wouldn't it? And then the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man died and went to hell. And Lazarus, apparently a believer and a lover of God, died and went to heaven. He was ushered by the angels into Abraham's bosom, heaven, if you would. And the rich man went to hell and he was concerned for his brothers because he knew that they were as godless as he was. Now listen to what he says. He wants, he wants them to be saved. It's amazing how little hell fire, if you get in it, and if you would believe in it, makes you evangelistic. Verse 27 of Luke 16 says, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send Lazarus. You'd send him, Lazarus, from the dead, basically is what he's talking about, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that, that he might testify to them lest they come uh, also come to this place of torment. I mean, he said, man, that would do it. If you'd somebody rise from the dead and go preach to them, that would do it. They know he's dead because they probably kicked his body away from my fence. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He has the word of God. Let him hear that. Now then he says, He wasn't being a smart aleck or mean. Listen to what he keeps saying. But he said to him, If they do not hear verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And this is what Abraham said. But he said to him, If they do not hear the word of God, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Salvation is a miracle of God. The new birth is a miracle of God and heavy on the of God. He said, your tricks, get all the football players in the world you want to with big thick necks and tell about how they wasted their life and worldly living and then they one day got saved and boy, that'll draw the young people. That'll get them saved. It won't do one bit of good unless in their talk they talk about the gospel. Fancy lights and big shows and even films. I'm not against all this stuff. I enjoy doing things different. Are not helpful. Listen, what is helpful to win people to Jesus is the gospel alone. There's another solo we could put in there. The gospel when preached accurately with the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can awaken a dead sinner. We're not trying to wake up sleeping people we're trying to raise the dead and it's going to take a miracle. And he said, listen, you can do all the weird and fancy stuff you want to, but if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, if they will not hear the word of God, they are not coming. By God's word, at last, my sin I learned. And it was then I trembled at the law I'd spurned until my guilty so imploring turned to Calvary. Not only is the scripture sufficient to save, it alone is able to do so. Sola Scriptura. It is sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for our daily living. I'm going to hit this and go on. 2 Peter 1.3, as his divine power 
has given to us all things. Listen, his divine power through the word has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. What knowledge? Who called us by glory and virtue. And lastly, that gives us the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is God's Word and it's without error and is sufficient for salvation and life, let me give this to you. If Scripture is God's Word and is without error and is sufficient for salvation and for life, listen to me, it better be obeyed. It better be heeded. God means what He says. As a secular news broadcaster had to tell us on TV years ago, it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Yet we live life as if God didn't really mean what He said, does not care how we live, and will not judge the living and the dead. But my friend, that's a lie of Satan to you. God's Word tells us there is a payday someday. And every Christian must be before the bema seat of Christ. And every lost person will sit, stand before the judgment seat, the, uh, the great white throne judgment, and cast into hell if they do not believe. In essence, your life, your life testifies that you really don't believe the Scriptures when you're not doing what they say. You don't have to worry about WWJD. What you should worry about is uh, uh, WWJD. J.S., what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? And you find out what Jesus said and then you do it. Luke 6, 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Enough said, but I'm going to keep reading. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will, show, uh, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house and dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You know what the Bible says the will of God is? To believe on him whom he sent. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you get born again. You're a new creature in Christ and you will. You don't get saved by doing good works, but when you get saved, it produces good works in you. It changes you. In conclusion, young people, youth, I want to talk to you just a tad. Do you read your Bible on a daily basis? Do you study it like the Bible commands us that we should? If not, now listen. If not, you don't believe it. No amens? If you will not read your Bible, if you're not concerned about what it says and tells you, if you're out there claiming it's the authority of my life, you're lying. You're just simply lying. 
Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that he says to do? You know more about trends and fashion and sports and TikTok than you do about biblical truth and holiness. Don't tell me you're a Christian. If you don't read your Bible and seek after God and love His holiness, don't tell me you're a Christian. Hear what God says about His Word. Psalm 138.2 I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Now listen, for you have magnified your word above your name. You don't think God loves his word? Thinks that you ought to respect and read and do it? He has magnified it above his own holy name. Proverbs 13, 13, He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Psalm 19, verse 7. Listen, I'll just read it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the foolish, the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true, true and righteous altogether. Now listen, make this your verse. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Is that the way we feel about God's word? It's like hearing there's a treasure of gold out in the backyard. We, we'd dig it. The gophers would be embarrassed at us if we found out there was gold dug in our backyard. Do we dig like that in God's word? Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. In heaven, now listen to me, I'm almost finished. In heaven there's two things in heaven that are on earth. Only two things that will be in heaven that are now on earth. One of them is your eternal soul if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the second thing is the Word of God. God's Holy Word. God's Holy Word. Last eve I passed beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. And look again, I saw upon the floor, old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had? How many hammers have you how many anvils have you had to wear the hammer so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. So thought I. The anvil of God's word. For ages skeptics' blows had beat upon, yet through the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. 